me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to worship you in song and prayer and giving and to continue to worship you now as we consider your word. We know your word is truth. We know that it gives insight. We know that it will light our path. We know that it will be used by your spirit to strengthen our hands, to steady our minds, to encourage our hearts, to enable us to do your will. We need you. We need your spirit. We need your grace to be fruitful in this hour. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are some things we look at and we say, wow, that's, there's nothing like that. There's nothing as wonderful as that. Like when I look at my wife, like there's no one like her. She's, she's beautiful. And she's perfect. She's just what I, what I need and just what I want. I look at my kids and they're like, wow, that's just, they're incredible. And I look at you and you're like, wow, you're special people. Look at your, your matchless, a matchless congregation with all of your, your unique and varied character traits. And then there are other things that we look at and we say, really, there, there's nothing like this. When you, when you see the Grand Canyon, when you see the Grand Canyon, it, it is just spectacular. I went across country with my family. This is when I was a 12-year-old. We, we drove across country. I was the navigator. I got us there. I actually got us to the Grand Canyon. I didn't get to drive because I was 12, but I got us there. And we, we, we arrived at the Grand Canyon so excited, and it was fogged in. So you could see kind of like, like some fog and the edges of what must have been spectacular. However, when you see pictures, you are, you're really taken by it. The same trip, we went to California, and we drove down what's called Big Sur. Oh, man. That is spectacular. There... You know, I'm sure that there's something else like it somewhere, but it, it really, for all intents and purposes, it really is it's a matchless view. It's just incredible. And then by telescope, we get to see things like this. That's a nebula. Nebula is exploded gas. <laughs> it looks better than some other forms. But um, nonetheless... This one, I think, is called Thor. So um, there's one nebula called Thor. It's just, isn't that beautiful? Now, you don't, I guess you don't really get quite the same view when you're looking at it on the screen through a projector as you do on your computer screen, or if you actually looked in a telescope that showed you that. That is just, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. These kinds of images inspire awe. Now, what I want for you to consider, just for the next 45 minutes or so, is the one who created these things. Just how much awe should we have when we consider our God who created such amazing, beautiful demonstrations of his power, his wisdom, his ability. Our God is matchless. We've been studying for these last months a book by the name of Micah, named after the 
prophet whom God used to bring these truths to the nation of Israel. His name is Micah. The book bears his name. And the name means, who is like God? So when you open the book of Micah and begin to read, you have this this immediate, if you understand what the term Micah means, you have this introduction to the book, which is, who is like God? And then you come to the end of the book, and the book concludes with this very same question, which says in verse 18, who is a God like you? We want to consider this matchless God whom we worship. When you have a book that begins with one concept and ends with one concept, it's telling you something that everything in between is supposed to lead you to understand this concept. So as we've studied the book of Micah, what should have happened if I did my job correctly of conveying the Bible truth, you should end the book of Micah thinking, my God is like no other God in all the world. He is amazing. And certainly as we come to the conclusion of our study, this will be at the forefront of our minds. Last week we looked at verses 8 through 14, and we noticed this about our God. First of all, God is just. God is just. In other words, he requires righteousness out of people. He requires righteousness out of people. Do you know, did you know this, there will not be one unrighteous person in heaven. If you don't know doctrine, that should make you quiver in your seat. Understanding the doctrine of the Bible helps us to understand that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through embracing Christ, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, what he does is he changes the record. He removes every stain of sin. He removes every mark of unrighteousness from our record and casts it on Christ and places on our account, in our stead, the righteousness of Christ. And so, based upon understanding who Jesus is and embracing him as our Savior, those who trust him have been made righteous in every way. So we have a standing with God. We have an eternity with God based upon this kind of justice. God won't allow one unrighteous person into heaven. And we can see God's justice in how he administrates his judgment on the earth. Well, that's what we saw in verses 8 through 10. Then we noticed this in verses 11 through 13, that God is faithful God is faithful. And how important is that? God brings his promises to pass. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to cause his kingdom to expand. He's going to cause his kingdom to uh, absolutely inhabit the earth. God is going to cause all of the promises that he made to Abraham and his children to come to pass. God is faithful. We, We delight in God's faithfulness because if God were not faithful... What standing would we have? If you couldn't count on God to keep his word, what would you then trust in? But the fact that, you know, he is faithful, he does keep his word, that his word is sure. When we trust his word, we know what's going to happen in our lives. So God is faithful. We notice this, and it makes us very happy and very thankful. Then we got into verse 14 and noticed that God is a shepherd. Now, it's stated in a sense that, that Micah says, God shepherd your people. 
We know, however, from other passages, and we looked at them, that God does, in fact, shepherd his people. It means he feeds them, he provides for them, he protects them, he guides them, he brings them to the proper place. God shepherds his people. God is a shepherd that humbles us, and it makes us appreciate God infinitely. Because this one who is, is matchless in his judgment tenderly cares for a person like me. Tenderly nourishes, guides, enables someone like me. This is good news, friends. This is good news in the book of Micah. Now we come to verse 15. And what we want to notice about God as we're answering the question, who is a God like you? God is almighty. God is almighty. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them, could also be translated you, I will show them wonders. Well, what kind of wonders did God show the people of Israel and the people of Egypt in the process of rescuing them, or as the Bible calls it, redeeming them from the land of Egypt. Well, we, we remember the plagues on the Egyptians. They kind of gross us out a little bit when we think about the flies and the lice, when we think about water turned to blood. We just, it, it doesn't make us feel really happy. It doesn't make us feel really comfortable. But these are the things that God did to demonstrate his power and to redeem his people Israel from among the Egyptians. You'll remember that God in this process parted the Red Sea and equally miraculous, he restored the Red Sea to its proper flowing. In the process of this deliverance, God provided for them food and drink. For how long? 40 years. 40 years God provided for them. God preserved their clothing and sandals for 40 years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine one pair of shoes lasting you 40 years? Now just imagine you were walking for a living. So like you're a mailman and you've got a pair of shoes and you're going to wear that set of shoes for 40 years. Good luck with that. But God showed wonders in preserving their clothing and their shoes. You'll remember the victory at Jericho. This is not a battle plan that any one of us would ever, ever prescribe. I have an idea. Here's what you'll do. Show up at Jericho. Shh. Walk around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, walk around it a number of times. And then make a lot of noise. All of those footsteps will corrode the underneath of the walls. The vibration of your noise and your stomping will cause the walls to come collapsing down. Anyone agree with my take on that? I'm going to go with no. I think that's not going to work. Ah, unless God makes the walls come tumbling down. Wonders. Wonders at Jericho. And then you'll remember a supernatural act of God in the midst of a battle in Joshua's day where they were running out of time. And they prayed. And God caused the sun to stand still. 
well, scholars, I use that term very loosely, scholars would say that couldn't happen. Naturalists would say that couldn't happen. Anyone know who created the heaven, the earth, and all that in them is? Anyone here know who that is? Uh, does anyone know who made the rules of the universe? Does anyone think he can alter those rules of the universe since it took him just words to speak the world into existence? Does anyone think he could do this? I do. I do. Maybe you don't. God help you. Literally, God help you. you you've got to know that he is capable of even this. I will show them wonders as when they came out of Egypt. God's making promises. Now, we're going to hold our hand here. Actually, you don't hold your hand. We're going to come back to Micah. Just put something there that you can come back to if you have a hard time finding Micah. We're going to turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. First of all, Psalm 78. God shows wonders. God is capable of wonders. God is capable of the supernatural because he is supernatural. God is capable of doing mighty things because he is almighty. This is our consideration. Who was a God like you? Well, I'll tell you what, he's almighty. He has all the might. Verse, uh, Psalm 78, I'm going to read a number of verses through here. Not the whole thing, you can enjoy that on your own. But we will look at a number of passages, beginning in verse 4. We will not hide them, God's doings, we will not hide them from their children, telling the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders and his wonders. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. Listen to what he does. He split the rocks in the wilderness and he gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. Look down at verse 23. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his, what does it say, wondrous works. Look at verse 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his 
wonders in the field of Zoan. It goes on and talks about their departure from Egypt. Look down at verse 52. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. You know, we could read more. What's the point? What's the point? The point is God showing wonder upon wonder upon wonder upon wonder. How can he do all these things? I know why. Because he is almighty God. He is almighty God. This is who he is. Who is a God like you? He is almighty. There is nothing that prevents him from doing any, any of his will. Take a look a little further at Jeremiah 32, please. Jeremiah 32. We should be astounded at God's power. We see his power in creation. We see his power all around us. We see his power when he brings a baby forth. We see his power when he heals a person from disease. We see his power constantly. We should not neglect. We should not neglect to see the hand of God in our lives. Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 17 God's word says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Look down at verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Survey. Anything too hard for God? Do you know that he's God? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe he created the heaven, the earth, and all that in them is? Is anything too hard for him? The answer class is absolutely, utterly, no, nothing. Let's follow it a little further, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is praying here in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and, and we are privileged to see the record of this prayer. And part of this prayer is that he wanted them to know the hope of God's calling. Part of it is that he wanted them to know and us to know the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. And then, thirdly, a third category that he wanted us to know is this, beginning in verse 19, Ephesians 1, 19. And to know what is the exceeding greatness. Now, the word exceeding has the idea of throwing it past the boundaries. It's like, okay, you get, you get the football, and you're going to kick it, but you kick it, and it goes through the end zone, by the crowd, out of the stadium. It's way beyond. It's by the boundaries. Exceeding greatness of what? His power. Now, I wanted to emphasize that, but I don't want to miss the next two words. Okay, well, look at the next two words. See them? I hope that your version says it the same way mine is, or else you're going to read the wrong two words. We're going to read it together aloud. Ready? Toward us. Is that what your version says? I hope so. Could be out of order. God's exceeding power toward us. You know, it's wonderful that God has all this power, isn't it? 
that God can do anything he wants. It's beautiful. And we say, God, you're awesome. But how about when that power is toward us, benefiting us? Does that make it that much better? It takes this abstract power and personalizes it so that it's at work for me. And that's what he's about to tell us. Take a look a little further. I'm going to read verse 19 again, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked, that power which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, the church which is his body, the church which is the fullness of him, who fills all in all. God's power has been manifest to us in Christ as our head, and he comes and he, and he filters through us, and that power is alive in us. And if we had the time to look into chapter 2, we'll say, we, we, we would notice that we were dead in trespasses and sin. And he made us alive. And he made us to sit together with him in heavenly places. He raised us up just like he raised Christ up. And just like he set Christ in heavenly places, he set us in heavenly places. This is how God's almighty power makes an impact in our puny little lives. See, it's great that he can make the Grand Canyon. But how about when he saves my soul? Amen. And how about when he restores my soul? How about when he renews my mind? How about when he lifts me up when I'm in despair? How about when he delivers me when I am gripped by my own passions? How about when he does these things? Does his power mean something to you then? He is almighty God. Who is a God like you? He's almighty. He delivers a lowly one like me and a lowly one like you. What a God. There is no one like him. The Bible says in Revelation 19 and verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. What, are they, what is it crying out? What's the words? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Listen, you may be in despair of what's going on in life, Maybe your own personal life. Maybe you look at the country. Maybe you look at the world. Maybe you have all these burdens on your heart. Listen, give it up. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Do you believe that? Does he reign today? He does. It's not just about reigning sometime in the future. He reigns now. He owns it all. Do you believe it? God's Almighty. Is God capable of performing supernatural acts? Oh, yes, none of us, well, I don't think any of us doubt that. Does God still demonstrate his power today? Listen, can, can you just, just take a pause, take a deep breath, drop every thought in your mind, and I want you to answer this question. Or think about this, maybe not answer a question. Every time you and I demonstrate 
the fruit of the Spirit. Every time you and I demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, God is performing a supernatural work. Friend, you don't have it in you to love. Oh my, does this have any implications in our marriages? Maybe you have found yourself, friend, fallen out of love with your spouse. You know what? Your love really wasn't good enough anyway. Your love wasn't going to keep the marriage together anyway. I have a suggestion for you. Rather than trying to muster up some faulty, unbeneficial, non-substantial love, why don't you yield yourself to the Spirit and let the Spirit produce a love in you that you could never produce. And you know what God will, in that moment, in that time frame that you are yielded to His Spirit, He'll bring forth love, and it will be supernatural. It is, you ready, miraculous. Is God still performing his wonders today? Yes, he is. God is performing his work. This is supernatural. These are wonders. Do not shortchange the fruit of the Spirit as though it's some lesser form of God's wonders. And do not ever think for one second that you are capable of these divine demonstrations. Here's what happens to us as we've been churched long enough, and we've been Christianized long enough. We know what love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance look like, and we know how to start to make our faulty attempts at them, and sometimes, friends, we are utterly satisfied by those faulty, ridiculous, ungodly, fleshly attempts at the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to make you and myself not satisfied with my fruit and only satisfied by God's divine fruit. This is God doing wonders. God is almighty, and he can even do almighty works in your own heart. Isn't that great? I love this. Head back to Micah chapter 7 for a moment. So God is just. God is faithful. God is a shepherd. God is almighty. And as we look at verses 16 and 17... This isn't too far removed from the last one, but it does have a different slant to it, and that is this. God is, here's our our great word, awesome. God is awesome. And I truly mean that word with the concept of awe. God is worthy of awe. God is awesome. God produces awe. God, ready, mandates awe. Maybe you don't have an awe for God right now. I'm telling you, as sure as you're seated where you are, there is coming a day that you will be awestruck. Whether for a very good reason or for your sake a very bad reason. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day you will be in awe of him. It'd be nice to be in awe of him now and in awe of him then rather than to exclude awe now and to finish with awe then because that awe is not a saving awe. We should be taken aback by just how great our God is. Well, with that in mind, we're going to read verses 16 and 17 of Micah chapter 7. The nations shall see 
and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. It will be so astonishing for them, their ears shall be deaf. It will be so astonishing to them that they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Now, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of all how it comes to its full fruition, though we will make some implication of it. I want for us to see the, the content here, the, the, the theological content, which is that God is awesome. The nation shall see. What will they see? Well, it's what he's talking about in verse 15. I will show them what? Wonders. What, what are they going to see? They're going to see wonders. And because of those wonders, they will be ashamed of their own might because they'll compare their might to his might and they will find themselves lacking greatly. When you compare yourself to God, you find yourself very small. You should find yourself very small. And because of that, it says they shall lick the dust like a serpent. The idea there is to be humiliated. They will be humiliated. They'll, they'll, they'll get to the point where they, where, okay, I know who you are, and I know your greatness, and I see my humility. Let me go on my face. That's where I belong. Before the Lord, I belong on my face. Every ounce of me, not just the physical form, but my spiritual being should be humbled for Almighty God. Then it says, they shall turn in dread to the Lord. They shall turn in dread to the Lord. It says, they shall be afraid of the Lord our God. I have the ESV in my notes here. They shall turn in dread to the Lord because it's a, it's a better translation. They'll be very afraid. They'll be greatly afraid. Hold your hand here because we're going to come right back. But take a look at the book of Hosea, just a few books to your left. Hosea chapter 11. Now, as we're reading this section, verses 16 and 17 of Micah 7, there are elements of that section that makes it sound very negative, doesn't it? We'll hear they're, 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 they're afraid and they're turning in dread, but where are they turning? They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. This is a very positive thing. Dread, in this sense, is to recognize, oh, here I am fighting against God's people because I'm fighting against God himself. This is what they will realize. My war is with God, and I'm starting to see who he is. This is not a winning battle. And they don't turn in dread and run from the Lord, but it says they turn in dread to the Lord our God, and so there's a repentance toward him, which is what every human being needs, is to turn from self in our way, in our desire, and to turn to him and his way and his desire and his salvation. Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, please. They shall walk after the Lord he will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. He's not talking about Israel. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of 
Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. You know what God just tells us here in, in Hosea 11? He says, it's not about one group of people. It's about all the world that God is saving for himself. From every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every people. God will bring people to himself because they'll see him for who he is. And then instead of turning and running, they'll turn toward him. Why? Because God is awesome. Head back to the book of Micah for a moment. We'll look at the last phrase of verse 17. And they shall fear because of you. They shall be in fear of you. But ultimately their fear is not the people. Correct. The people aren't going to fear the people of Israel. They're going to fear the God of Israel. And what we want to note from that is a passage from the, from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, God's word gives us this glorious passage concerning the awe, the reverence that we ought to have for God. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Friend, in light of God's utter sovereign power, he is to be reverenced and worshipped. He is awesome. Who is a God like you? Well, I'll tell you. I want to tell you a little bit about him. He's just. And he's faithful. He's a shepherd. He's almighty. He's awesome. We could imply right from the question, who is a God like you, that he's holy. We're not going to go there. It would be a great conversation, just not one of the, the concepts we're looking at. We're trying to understand that, that Micah is providing for us this nugget, this nugget of a section that gives us a, a fairly good understanding of who God is. And so as we look a little further, we want to know this. God is merciful. God is Merciful. You'll want to note in verses 18 and 19, there are three different words, four occurrences, but three different words for the word sin. Sin. Iniquity is used two times, once in verse 18, once in verse 19, and the word means perversity. Perversity. The root idea of the word is that of twisted. Twisted. Or distorted. In verse 18, the word transgression is used. We're going to read it in just a moment. Transgression, and that idea is rebellion. God says, go here. I say, no, 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 I'm going over here. You see a, a do not trespass sign, you say, yeah, whatever. You walk right in, someone shoots you in the head, you're done. Why? Well, there was a sign that said, don't trespass. You rebel the sign. God says, our rebellion, our sin is a rebellion against him. It's doing what I told you not to do. Then there's a third word, and it's the word, very complex, never heard this one before, sins. <laughs> it means to miss the mark, or, maybe even a better definition, not to line up with expectations. Also in verses 18 and 19, which we will read in a moment, are four words for sins, forgiveness. Four words for sins, forgiveness. First of all, in verse 18, there's pardoning, pardoning. Also in verse 18, passing over. In 19, the word subdue. Subdue. In God's mercy, 
he removes sin's mastery over us. And also in verse 19, cast. In God's mercy, he removes the guilt and consequences of our sin. So, with that in, in mind, let's read verses 18 and 19. I'll read it, you follow along. The Bible says, who is a God like you, pardoning our twistedness, our iniquity, and passing over the transgression or rebellion of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, but because he delights in mercy, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. Again, that's the word of twisted, our distortions. You will cast all of our sins, our not meeting the mark or coming up to expectations. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So God is giving us a vivid illustration of who he is as a merciful God. He says, you sin, you're twisted, you're distorted, you're rebellious, you don't ever come up to the expectation, you don't meet the mark. Here's what I do. I pardon, and I pass over, and I subdue, I crush sin's mastery over you. I will cast it as far away so you can't reach it and experience its guilt or consequences anymore. This is who God is. He's giving us a vivid picture of who he is as a God. And let me tell you, friends, there's no God like this. Men do not conceive of this kind of mercy. They can't conjure it up in their head. In fact, when confronted with it, they say, no, thank you, I want my own way. And yet God portrays himself as he is in truth, as merciful beyond compare. The New American Commentary quotes the NIV Study Bible and makes this statement, and it's, it's good. It helps us with this section. God not only puts our sins out of sight, he also puts them out of reach, out of mind, and out of existence. This is the depth of God's mercy for you. Walt Kaiser gives us an understanding of, of how a Jewish person understands this passage. Once every year on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the Orthodox Jew goes to a stream or river and symbolically empties his sins from his pockets into the water as he recites Micah 7, 18 through 20. This is the Tishlik service, named after the word you will cast. It symbolizes the fact that God can and will take our sins, wash them down the streams of running water, and bury them deep in the depths of the ocean. God not only forgives our sins, he also forgets them. Listen, if you, don't, if you don't understand this part of God's mercy, you don't understand his salvation. But if you've experienced, if you've tasted, if you've tasted of the salvation of the Lord and of the Lord himself, you know the depths of his mercy because you know the corruption of your own heart. And so you say, God, there is no one like you. Who is a God like you? Well, he's just, and he's faithful, and he's a shepherd. He's almighty, he's awesome, and he's merciful. One last attribute of God, or one last perfection of God. And it's so fitting that we should end on it. God is gracious. God is gracious. 
I'm going to read verses 18 through 20 because this is sprinkled throughout. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. At the end of verse 18, he makes this statement, and it's, it's rather beautiful, because we have noted that God is just, so he requires righteousness in people, and that righteousness is not forthcoming, and so there are times of judgment, right? And Micah says, I want to tell you a little bit about my God. He doesn't hold on to anger forever, and I want to tell you why. <coughs> Because he delights. He delights. And it says in mercy. A better translation is steadfast love. He delights in steadfast love. The word in the Hebrew is hesed. And it is my favorite Old Testament word. Hesed. It gives us the concept of God's steadfast covenant loyalty. He forever he forever pours his favor into our lives. Listen, you've met people and you thought you could confide in them and they turned their back on you and it hurt. Here's what I want to tell you about God. He'll never turn his back on you. He'll always turn his face toward you. Not because you're great, but because the son is great. And his son stood in your place and took the penalty of your sin. He bore your sin. He paid the debt of the guilt of your sin. He removed the guilt and the debt and the consequences of your sin forever. God is steadfastly loyal. He'll never turn from you and say, nah, I'm finished with you. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He is steadfastly loving. Secondly, he renews his compassion toward his people. It says, verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. Now, he had compassion, right? And he will again have compassion. I wonder if maybe there might be some implication that we might have missed if we only look at the past and the present. And here's the implication I would think you would miss, is that all the while, he still had compassion. He didn't dry up in his compassion and then restore it at some future time. He had, will have, and still does have compassion on you. How, how can I be so sure? How can I be so sure that even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of iniquity, I'm not promoting rebellion and iniquity, right? You know this? But even in the midst of rebellion and iniquity, God tells us of his compassion toward us. And, and I can direct your mind to Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14, we have this faithful high priest who has gone up into the heavens. It tells us that he wasn't tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. But right before that, he says he has compassion 
He feels with us in our weaknesses, and he is talking about sin. He feels with us in our weaknesses. Well, if he's feeling with us in our weaknesses, what, what is the out, you know, what's the end result of that? Well, he tells us what the end result of it is. In verse 16, Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come with freedom of speech to the throne of grace. Don't hide anything from the throne of grace. He knows it all already, and he has compassion on you. You're a high priest brings that with him and makes an, has made an offering for you in your place. You don't have to say, oh, I don't want God to know this and be like Adam and Eve and hide somewhere covering yourself with fig leaves. Where are you? Are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid because I know there's a price that's been paid. I'm not saying I'm happy about my sin. I'm not saying I'm comfortable in my sin. I don't think that rebellion is okay or transgression or iniquity, any of it. None of it's okay. But I don't stand before God dressed in my own righteousness. I stand before God dressed in the righteousness of Christ. He has compassion for you. God is gracious. There's a third concept in verse 20, and that is he supplies grace and truth. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Now, I want to just tell you something. Micah, you, maybe, maybe it doesn't come to your mind at the forefront. Micah just made a backwards reference, and without his knowing, he made a forward reference. The backward reference is to a time in Moses' day, right after the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, where God is telling Moses a little bit about himself. Listen to how God describes himself in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, now listen carefully, and abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and faithfulness, the word there is amet, amet, and it's truth. He just told us that he's Merciful or gracious, steadfastly loyal, chesed, and he's truth, amet. This is what he just told you in verse 20 of Micah 7, that God will again bring forth his grace and his truth, and he introduced himself to Moses by saying, I'm full of grace and truth. And then there's a coming day from Micah's vantage point when John the Baptist and John the Apostle, and all these people, they're pointing to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, and verse 17, the Bible says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace, that's a reference to chesed, and truth, that's the reference to amet. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when we look at the end of Micah 7, he points us back to Exodus, and unknowingly, unwittingly, he points us forward to Jesus. How? I will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. My question for you is this, how? How will he give truth to Jacob? How will he give mercy to, to, to Abraham? I'll tell you how. 
God has poured forth his grace. God has poured forth his truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Micah points us to Christ. It tells us all about him. It tells us about God. Who is a God like you? I want to tell you. You have a little theology at the end of Micah. God is just. And God is faithful. God is a shepherd. God is almighty. God is awesome. You could also add God is holy. God is merciful. God is gracious. You could add God is truth. And we see all of these truths as God points us continually to his son who fulfills it all and brings us, if we, if we come to him, he brings us into line with all of it. Who is a God like you? Well, I'll tell you, there's no one like him. And I might suggest to you, friend, if you don't know him, today would be a great time to come to know this God. And if you do know him, what should your response be? What should it be? Awe, reverence, gratitude, yieldedness. And it should make us want to go and tell people, hey, listen, I know God. I know God. You won't find satisfaction like this anywhere else. Micah answers this question. He wants us to know who God is. And I think he's told us, he's given us a lot. He's given us a lot to understand who God is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Your astounding mercy. We are, we are overwhelmed by your mercy. And so we're overwhelmed by you. Do your work in our hearts, please. If there's anyone here that's never trusted Jesus, may they come today for him. May they turn in dread and fear to you, knowing that they'll find mercy and grace to meet them in their deepest need. Provide for them eternal life, perfect righteousness, joy, and rejoicing in their spirit. Help us, help us that we would revel in the mercy that has been shown to us and the compassion that never ceases to amaze us. In Jesus' name, amen.